The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here and a special guest from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 uh, 7420. Good morning, gentlemen. And Don, you brought a, a special guest here to start the new year. Yes. Uh, and I'm always happy to have Philip Peterson join us. He's our chief investment strategist uh, for IG Private Wealth or IG Wealth. And uh, you know what? I know listeners have probably heard you before, Philip, but I never get bored of hearing what exactly this means because it, it's, it's a mouthful at the best of times. And uh, so, you know, what exactly does this, a chief investment strategist do? Certainly. Well, first, Scott and Don, thank you for having me on and Happy New Year to you both. If it's not too late to continue to say that. Um, <laughs> uh, so Chief Investment Strategist, what I do is really spend uh, the large proportion of my time evaluating where we are, whether it's Canada, the United States or globally in the economic cycle and the business cycle, try to identify the opportunities, the investment opportunities in front of us or potential pitfalls, things that we might want to avoid, and then deploy those findings into an asset allocation, basically positioning our portfolios for the potential outcomes that we see over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Got it. And I, and I see, if I, if I looked at the hierarchy of IG, you only report to one person. And that would yes. be uh, David exactly. Murchison, our CEO. Exactly. Yeah, that's so, it. So, so I'm, I, they, they put me, slotted me right there. Um, so I'm part of the management team. Uh, that works with our CEO. Uh, so uh, it, I would say additional responsibilities will be on that management committee, just helping guide the uh, direction of the corporation as a whole. That's great. And I, and I know two people do report to you, and they have a, a similar title, um, both uh, as just, uh, and I could probably, I won't probably pronounce it, Utarid and Pierre Bonnard Gauthier, um, and they're AVPs of investment strategy. And exactly what do they do for you? Well, it's the same thing. So we work very collaboratively as a team. Um, we divide up the research responsibilities. We're always updating our models. But part of the importance of this role as well is, is to communicate what we find in the positioning and the lessons and, and so on to our consultants and our clients. Um, a lot of what we do, Don, as you know, the, the, the importance to investing is the process and commitment to it itself. Now, occasionally we can have things pop up where uh, investors will want to sell out of the market for one reason or another. In some cases, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's usually not best determined by the individual investor off of uh, some news item or YouTube video or whatever it might be. It should be uh, it should involve fairly rigorous research. So. Part of our role is is almost playing psychologist or or money coach uh, to our clients. Yeah, and that's great. And so you got you know yourselves kind of an overview of kind of everybody for that matter, and, and a and a and a great kind of tilting, if you will, of, of allocation. Um, and then you look at a portfolio manager, and I would think that a lot of people confuse the two between what you do and what they do. Can we just get a, you know, clear the air, what exactly what one does, a portfolio manager versus what you do? Certainly. And and I suppose 
technically I'm also a portfolio manager named on a handful of our, our, um, uh, mandates on behalf of our clients, but just to make um, it more confusing, right? I know, but but well, <laughs> let's divide it up into this way, right? There's many different ways to invest, and and our partners um, that we work with on many of our on all of our portfolios, we hire other portfolio managers to buy and sell the individual securities. So that might be making a decision on whether you want to own Microsoft or Apple or or Canadian Tire, whatever it might be or bonds. So we have individual managers that do that. That's their specialty, analyzing companies from the, we call it the bottom-up process. So what a company does, where its sources of revenue are, how it manages its expenses, management, and so on. What I do, uh, another way of looking at investing is saying, well, let's look at geographic areas or broad asset classes, whether it be US stocks, Canadian stocks, uh, European stocks, and so on. And you know, what are the characteristics of those broad asset classes that are attractive or unattractive? And then we we kind of mash up those two together to say, hey, we have expertise at the bottom up stock selection or, or bond selection uh, environment. And then we have expertise at the call it top down or the macro environment, the asset class level to try and generate outperformance every step along the way. You know, that's great. And I know one one product that I personally love, and it's particularly good for high net worth clients, is iProfile discretionary. And an example of what you're you know, describing here, and one of our managed solutions is global equity balance model. So in it, you would have things such as a Canadian equity area, a US, an international emerging markets. And each of those has three or four different managers running pieces of that pie, if you will. Um, then you have things such as active allocation, private pool, which is run by BlackRock, which, and I'd like to get find the difference between what you and them do in a second. And then you've got alternative private pools, fixed income. And this is interesting. You've got the fixed income, which are your bonds and your things that pay interest. And of course, all the other ones pretty much are equities. And so if I look at this, the fixed income area should be between 10 and 30%. And then as an example, the uh, Canadian equity pool is somewhere between 8 and 28%. So your job, I'm assuming, is, okay, where does that fixed income lie right now? Should it be closer to the 30% or should it be closer to the 10%? And, and likewise for all the other um, pools inside that managed solution. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And that's exactly what I do. It's, it's looking at that saying, here are the ranges for each asset class. Now, you have to think of it. Sometimes the Canadian equity market is attractive um, and exhibits attractive upside, meaning you know we think there's there's strong potential here, more so than what we can see in other areas of the market. And so what that then would dictate is that we shift the portfolio a little bit more towards Canada. Now we don't swing it from eight to twenty eight percent. That would contribute a <laughs> lot of risk and a lot of volatility and create a lot of turmoil and, and in fact cost uh, performance. But if you think of it, just adjusting the volume dial, just you know, taking it up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit down. Um, over time, these incremental moves across the asset classes can deliver performance. Uh, and, and for example, in 2022, we saw the Canadian market outperform the US market by about 10%. Now, both were down, but Canada was down by much less. So being overweight Canada benefited our clients in that instance 
Yeah. And, and so that's what we're trying to capture with those ranges that you just mentioned. That's the, the, the outcome is tilting these to where the opportunity lies. And yeah, a good example is your U.S. mandate can be anywhere from 7 to 27% of the portfolio and Canada's 8 to 28% of the portfolio. So if you said, okay, you know, I want to move Canada from 15 to 20% and I want to move U.S. from 20 to 15% back in 22, um, 2022, that would have benefited the portfolio greatly by doing that. It's a 10% disparation uh, change between the two of them. Exactly. Now, yeah, it, I would say it's a little bit more nuanced than that in that we don't want to make big swings. Um, again, you expose too much risk, but gradually over time, you tilt a little bit of the portfolio. Let's say we're moving from from you know one asset class to the other. So you tilt a little bit of the portfolio in that direction. The thesis or, or our belief, you know, we're starting to see evidence that this is the case. This is the direction that we're going because, look, we could be wrong. Anyone can be wrong. The information can change very, very quickly. So if we see it, it working out, we tilt it again, and then we tilt it again. And you build this position over a period of time. And how often would you do these tilts? Well, the research shows that, you know, really, uh, you don't need to do them any more than quarterly. Okay. Okay. So yes. once every three months, you say, okay, what we, and, and of course, there's a lot of work that goes in between those three months to try to, you know, how many data points you look at to try to determine what we should be looking to change. Our database or our research folder has probably about 300 different spreadsheets in there that, that we pay attention to at any given time. Um, and these are updated uh, as more information comes out. And, and so what we're trying to identify is the direction that we're moving in and using okay. the historical relationships between you know, manufacturing and exports and consumer, uh, consumer sales and interest rates and so on, you can get a snapshot of the the most likely outcome. And that's, I think, the what we're trying to achieve here. What is the most likely outcome? Not the you know, 100% certain outcome, but the most likely outcome and what asset classes tend to perform well in that outcome. And so this is an ongoing process. Right. And, and so now we're looking at 2023 in the rearview mirror. What happened in 23? What, uh, first of all, let's kind of go through uh, an overview of countries and performance. And then what did you do? So let, let's start. Uh, in general, I would say what happened is the the stock market and the economy uh, economies around the world showed more resilience than what many believed when we started 2023. And Don, if you recall, you know, a year ago, a lot of people were still talking about recession, saying we're going to hit a recession by the end of the year. We'll see a recession in the third quarter, whatever it might be. We even said, look, the, the risk of recession um, isn't something to be ignored. We weren't calling for a recession, but we said, yes, you know, we have to be aware of the risks. Now, what happened is we didn't, or, or I would say we saw a recession in part, if not the whole. So we saw a recession in parts of the U.S. economy, parts of the Canadian economy, but not enough to call it an outright recession. And that led to better markets than what we thought coming into the year. So um, I would say in general, as investors open up their statements from 2023, they will, be, they will be pleasantly surprised at the returns that we saw in the U.S., in Canada, in international, and in bonds that each of these asset classes suffered quite a, a, a in some cases, significant downturn in 2022. 
Yes, and you're absolutely right. We were all sitting there looking at the statements. Canada was down about 5% a year ago, going back to 2022. You know, the U.S. stock market was down about 20. Bonds were down about 10. And there wasn't anybody, unless you're in cash, you did not, you know, you basically didn't make money. I guess some individual stocks in the oil gas sector did okay in 22. But then fast forward a full year later, interest rates look like they've leveled out. We haven't seen them drop, really. Um, and once we kind of saw those cues, you then saw the stock market start to take off. And um, particularly in the U.S. And and I'm going to get to this after the break, but two things that I'd like to talk about would be, what is this Magnificent Seven? It sounds like a Marvel character, or, or maybe that's a different show I used to watch when I was a kid. Um, and... You know, why it seems like they are having a massive impact on the overall stock markets and performance. So, you know, after the break, let's talk a bit about that. And also, what was your best success story from last year for you, what you made and made changes and maybe uh, what you wish you didn't do? We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, you uh, gentlemen, we're looking back and then uh, looking forward here. Yes, and and looking um, kind of back actually, and you think about the Magnificent Seven, and I think about you know Stretch Man and some guy that turns into a fire flamer, and all these, and somebody who turned into rock, and all these kind of these characters, which you know as a kid loved, and now all he hears about Magnificent Seven. What is the Magnificent Seven, and what impact did they have? Certainly, first off, Magnificent Seven are seven companies. They're uh, extremely large companies in the United States in the S and P five hundred. They make up a disproportionate weight uh, in the U.S. Uh, benchmark for stocks. They are Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Nvidia, the the uh, chip maker, uh, and then you have Meta, which is Facebook, and Alphabet, which is Google. These seven companies drove. The majority of the gains on the S&P 500 through last year, the others, we call them the forgotten 493, um, <laughs> yeah, had, had much more of a lackluster year. And and I would say, look, it, when, when you asked what went right, what didn't, what did we learn from it? This is an ongoing process and, and we always try and learn. And we know we're never going to be perfectly correct um, every single year, but we try and learn what what. If anything, did we miss? What could we have done differently? So we were underweight U.S. equities last year, Don, to be honest mm. with you. And, and that was the one thing that I would say held us back a little bit. Now, the, the portfolio still did quite well. Um, but when we look at you know what, it, what really pains me, it was the fact that I was underweight U.S. equities through the portfolios through the year. 
for the right reasons in that at the beginning of last year, we saw earnings risk, meaning earnings were going to be down year over year, and they were. We saw valuation risk, meaning stock markets entered the year in 2023 higher than what we would have liked. And those two things combined normally turn into a much more lackluster year. But that's not what we got because these seven stocks uh, generated at 1.90% of all the gains on the S&P 500 last year and really- Wow, 90% did you say? 90%, yes. Wow. Um, And so they drove the market higher. So when I look back and saying, well, what did we miss? We missed the the uh, the ability of seven stocks to move the market, and that's something that I said. Well, could we have done something differently a year ago? And it's like, no, we couldn't have because you know it wasn't dictated by valuation, wasn't dictated by earnings. There was nothing in there that said these seven companies will do extremely well. So, um, but the good news is that you know it, it we didn't really give up much performance because again we were invested we were still invested in us stocks just a little less than benchmark we had a healthy weight in european or international stocks that did well and then we were somewhat neutral canada and slightly overweight emerging markets and they did okay as well so overall um i'm happy as an investor in the the i profile global equity balance portfolio i'm very happy with the performance last year as the uh the decision maker for the asset allocation I'm I'm a little uh, disappointed uh, in in the performance because we missed we missed a little bit from what these seven stocks drove. Well, and, and again, don't beat yourself up too much, uh, Philip, because uh, pretty sure most people got this wrong. When you see the valuations, what they call the PE ratio, so high, and everybody else looks so you know you know valuations are much lower all across the world for that matter. It you know it seemed obvious that that had a lot more risk is you know and isn't there something to be said about risk adjusted returns though absolutely and and that's the other thing to it as well where part of me says i'm comfortable because valuation if i had said oh i'm going to buy these seven stocks it would have went against every um rule that i have in my process which is respect valuation eventually valuation matters uh and so uh, that's the interesting thing. Had I said, no, buy the Magnificent Seven, forget about valuation, forget about, you know, uh, where these things are priced. People should have taken a second look at me and said, mm, you're breaking your process. So I'm going to fire you. You know, so. Yes. You and know, you're, you're not staying in your lane. You're doing everything wrong. And sometimes you do, you know, everything right. And you still don't win, and, you know, as much as you could have. And you see some of those hockey games, you know, as an analogy, where the team outshoots the other team 50 to 20, and they end up losing 3-0. And you did everything right. You hit the goalpost 14 times, whatever it was, right? And and you did everything right, but you had seven, seven shots on net that, that you wish you could have got back. And those seven, like you said, 90%, like that's amazing that I had that much impact. And I know on the NASDAQ, it was like pretty much all of the return were those, which is the tech sector. So, um, you know, your performance, just to put in perspective, though, you know, what would have your returns have been last year? Well, when we break it down, it, it would only have been um, had we had a, an equal weight in the U.S., uh, it would have been a third of a percent higher. Doesn't okay. sound like a lot, but you know, what we're, <laughs> but that's... That could be a different over time that can compound. And, and uh, so it, it wasn't a significant amount. We're not talking like, oh, I missed 5% of the market. It was 
It was about a third of a percent. Okay, and that's that's the best way to put this. And again, if you do this 19 times out of 20 and follow your regimen of, of how to do things and, and look at your 300 data points and say, this is how we create a portfolio, I would suggest you're probably right 19 out of 20. Absolutely. And, and I think from a portfolio management perspective, you go back and you're always saying, what did I learn from this? What did I learn from this? And would I do anything differently? And truth be told, sticking to our process, which over time works and generates performance for, uh, for our portfolios and our clients, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Yeah, you know, And it comes back to it. If, if I was to sit there and say, oh, no, well, now, if I knew what I know today, a year ago, I would have bought these seven stocks. Well, no, because it would have gone against everything that we do with respect to valuation and earnings and, and um, asset allocation. And the Warren Buffett's of this world would totally agree with you. Benjamin Graham's would totally agree with you. All these gurus that look at investing and how to invest properly totally agree with you. But, you know, sometimes results just don't go in your favor. And I remember a time quite a number of years ago. And we had one of your predecessors way back. I've been doing this for 38 years. So I got a bit of history here. And it was three stocks that did well on the Toronto stock market. One was, um, uh, uh, sorry, it was a TD, Bell, and Nortel. And if you didn't own those three stocks, your return was zero. And if you had those three stocks, you end up averaging something like 8% that year. And I remember the same conversation. This is not the way. This is not a great stock market to invest in when you have, you know, 300 stocks. So you had the forgotten 297 in that case. And three stocks actually went positive. So in the S&P 500, which is the U.S. stock market, you had the forgotten 493. And obviously has a huge impact but it's kind of interesting a lot of things went to ai driven and a lot of the performances late in the year said okay ai is the next thing and a ton of money went to those type of things where microsoft's involved nvidia um i'm sure i'm sure some of the other magnificent seven were could you see how that you see that playing out well, it's a lot of speculation right now, and you're absolutely right. A lot of money did go chasing um, AI and the theme around artificial intelligence and how that is going to change how companies work, change, you know, enhance their profitability, whatever it might be. We don't know yet, to be honest with you. We just really don't know how a, utilizing AI in various businesses is going to make companies more profitable or more productive. Um, so there's a lot of speculation around it. Now, I think just naturally what AI could replace is a lot of the you know simple tasks that some of us do on a daily basis, whether it's you know writing an email or or writing an um, Excel macro, whatever it might be, you know AI could save us time on that. But um, we don't know. So it remains to be seen where who the winners will be versus the pretenders out there. Um, and that could be in the next year to number of years that that resolves itself. Well, just for fun, I went to chat GPT and I said, you know what, what would a person ask a chief investment strategist? And I thought, you know, I can let AI give me some questions here. So I got 10 quick questions. and I'm going to see if you can answer the AI questions. Perfect. I look forward to it. Okay, what macroeconomic factors are you currently influencing your investment strategy? Right now, it would be, uh, first one is manufacturing, global manufacturing and global exports. They tend to lead earnings growth. And right now we've seen an inflection point where these are improving 
from where we were a year ago that tells us that the global economy is actually more likely in a recovery phase as opposed to a recessionary phase. Well done. I don't know if AI is going to mark your results here, but uh, we're just going to go with this. Um, Number two, how does your team approach risk management within the fund? Uh, You you set a a risk budget. And so the way that I think about it is, is, um, it's not always about the upside. If you want the best upside, you know, black 27 in any casino will give you the best upside if you hit that. Good luck hitting that. So really it's, it's looking at the environment that we're in, understanding the um, probable outcomes of this environment, and then putting a base case, a bull case, and a bear case around that. You need to think of it that way. You can't just only think of the upside. You have to think of what is the potential downside as well. And so kind of threading the needle is minimizing some of that downside while um, while maximizing that upside, but it can't just be one-sided. It's got to be thinking a combination of both ends. So in a nutshell, just to get off the AI subject, just for a sec, would you prefer a 10% return with say risk of, of two or a 10.5% with a risk of 10? Well, obviously, you know, 10% return with a risk of two. Yes. I just I want to reduce the the probability of loss as best we can uh, while still capturing as much upside as we can. And and the reason I ask the question, it seems very obvious, but so many people just look at the statement and they simply see this is what the return was. And let's say it's more than just a half percent. Let's say it's two percent difference. But what they don't see is the risk and how much volatility that went up in quarter by quarter. And and I know most investors out there are what we would I would call get rich slow. They like consistent returns. They would love to have you sit there, manage their money, make seven to eight percent a year all day long, and they would be super happy. Of course. Um, it's kind of like the family that has two and a half kids that seven and 8% may not happen. It might be a 12% one year and a 2% the next year. Um, but you may average seven to eight on a, on a pure equity basis. And generally speaking, would you say around 6% above inflation seems to be a good mark? Yes. You know, I, I think that is, that is very reasonable. I mean, when you think about it, historically inflation sat around three and the return on the stock markets is uh, nine. So, you know, you net that out, that would be about six. The interesting thing on that, Don, is, is we often think about, well, what am I, you know, what are you estimating your inflation rate going to be? And then you need to achieve X over and above that. But in reality, the stock market, because companies have pricing power, they've already factored in inflation. So you don't need to really, it's almost like you don't need to worry about what the inflation rate is going to be. As long as you have a healthy uh, stock position in your portfolio, you will always be ahead of inflation. Yeah, and that's extremely important. That inflation factor is huge. Uh, number three, can you share insights on the fund's sector allocation and the reasoning behind it? Uh, great question. So the sector allocation actually is determined by the uh, the partners that we work with, those individual portfolio managers buying and selling the stocks. So I don't actually um, uh, steer the, port- the asset allocation sector by sector. I'm much more broad index and, and geographic. Um, but uh, when I look at at the the underlying positioning of our portfolio managers, one thing that jumps out, I'll just say, is is there is uh, a healthy weight to financials. So financials, wow. you know, banks, you know, they they've been beaten up over the last year, but they're very attractive. And so our managers, whether in Canada or the United States, have recognized that and have added to that position over time. Yeah, and not only the upside in terms of market value, but they also pay very good dividends. Exactly. Exactly. You're getting paid to wait, as we say. 
Yes, exactly. So number four, what is your perspective on the current market conditions and the potentials, opportunities, or challenges? Uh, very, very good question. So I would say if I, if I look at that in terms of opportunities and, and challenges, the opportunity is that I do think based on the data that, that I follow, we are seeing more of a recovery condition in the global economy than a recessionary condition. So a lot of the recessionary pressure that we saw a year ago is behind us. Right? It's kind of come and gone. And now we're starting to see improvement. So that I think opens up opportunity for companies to see profit growth and those companies should be rewarded. The challenges, uh, I would say, they really fall into two buckets. And normally we would say, look, don't pay attention to geopolitical risk because you know, it, it doesn't tend to have a meaningful or lasting impact on the markets. But we've got an election coming up uh, in the United States this year that can be a little contentious. I'm not worried about the policy, um, but I think it's going to stir emotions in investors. And then you have what's going on in the Middle East. And it, it, there's a whole host of things with the Houthis and, and the Red Sea, uh, Iran and, and Pakistan, you know, Israel and, and uh, Gaza uh, and Hamas. Um, this can create some uncertainty that could be disruptive to the global economy. We're seeing it in terms of, of trade routes. We could potentially see it in terms of oil prices. So that is something that we're watching. It's not all to the downside. Um, but you, you do have to be aware of some of the potential risks and what it could mean for market volatility. And, you know, just, and, and we'll just go on that just for one more second. You know, you got North Korea in the mix also on top of that. And, you know, that seems to be a bit of a sticking point with clients right now. They, they're hearing the news, it's front page. And you mentioned, and I guess it's a bit of a wild card in terms of how is it going to affect the market, but I, suspe I suspect that there could be good things that come from a, a market performance as well as negative things. Well, exactly. And that's that's where you know, not all crises are uh, lead to downside risk. Some of them lead to upside risk. And in, in the case of what we're seeing right now, surprisingly, there is no, um, uh, I would say, premium priced into a barrel of oil for some of the risks that we see in the Middle East. And so oil prices could, could be meaningfully higher and we could see uh, oil prices move up, energy stocks move up, and that could be good for Canada, the Canadian stock market and Canadian investors. Perfect. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest is Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, the uh, quick question fire round continues here. Yes, we got six minutes and six more AI questions. So let's get with it here. Um, how do you incorporate ESG, environmental social governance, considerations into your investment decisions? So it, it's a great question and one that you have to be careful of. You don't necessarily want ESG policies to be uh, ex, um, exclusionary 
meaning saying, I'll never own oil. I'll never own a mining company. You can basically go through the whole list of companies and find a reason not to sell them. What you want to do is really measure um, the risk of a company and, and the ability of that company to be a good steward of capital. We require all of our portfolio managers to sign off on the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investing and basically similar to like a doctor, do no harm. You know, um, don't necessarily be an active, activist investor, but uh, be conscious of the companies that you're investing in such that they are, as we are, good stewards of capital. Excellent. And what, what sets your fund? And again, it's not your fund, but your approach, I guess, apart from others in terms of strategy and, and performance. And I, and I guess I would say, what sets us apart from our competitors? Well, I think it, there's a couple things. One is that we take, uh, I would say, almost a, a multidisciplinary approach to, to portfolio management, where, Don, look, I'm an asset allocator. I'm very good at, at analyzing asset classes. I'm not good at security selection, like buying you know, is, is this tech company better than this company? That's not my, my expertise. And so it's recognizing what I'm good at. Um, hire, we have a team that's very good at identifying manager outperformance, like finding good managers around the world that we partner with. So we don't have in-house managers. We work with other companies, uh, we believe best in class for their asset classes and hire them. And they then buy the individual stocks and bonds and you know, invest in private equity and private debt. So it's co combining all of those elements that I think is fairly unique to us um, that uh, you know there'll be other companies say, oh, we're good at asset allocation and stock right. picking and bond picking and this and that. It's like, well, but are you? It's hard <laughs> to be good at everything. It is. And uh, and that is always the case. And this is what we find every, all of a sudden they're experts in everything, but really they're not. They're just okay at a lot of things. Um, here's a kind of a two-part question. How do you adjust your investment approach in response to changing economic and market conditions? And secondly, could you pro provide some historical context on how your fund has performed during various market cycles? Well, I think and, and a little bit of this is is. Before my time, I took over as uh, the portfolio manager for iProfile Funds in 2022. But I would think uh, when we look at 2021, 2022, and 2023, I think that gives us a great sense of what we're trying to achieve in these portfolios and through the, the diversification. 2021 was a great year. Um, relative to our benchmarks, we outperformed. We added value over and above the benchmark. 2022 was a bad year. Stocks and bonds were down. We here as well, um, while we had negative returns, as everyone did, our returns were better than the benchmark. So we had more upside, less downside. And then in 2023, we kept along with the benchmarks, if, if not a little bit higher, depending on the risk category. So that's ideally what we're trying to achieve. It's the same, if not better upside with less downside. And over time, uh, you'll compound that and what we want to do is help our clients achieve their financial goals. Well, there's a reason IG Wealth went out and grabbed you from a competitor. You had a 10-year uh, term with them, I believe, and you added a lot of value um, to that that company. And and if you had to kind of quantify extra return per year, is there a number? Well, you know, it, it's it's tricky because it wasn't it was a paper portfolio, so it was a model portfolio. But the objective was to deliver performance over and above a benchmark through asset allocation shifts over time. Now, this didn't happen consistently every quarter, every year, but over time, the process did on paper um, add value, outperform. But I, I I'm not 
uh, at liberty to say because it wasn't an actual portfolio uh, that was investable. Well, a true Canadian, very modest, and I appreciate that. Um, what, what role does research play in shaping your fund's investment decisions? Which I think it plays all, from what you said, almost all the role. It's everything. It's it's all about research. It's not about gut feel. If if you go by gut feel, your your guts, you know, de- it really <laughs> depends on what you ate that day for breakfast or for lunch. So, um, it's it's research and the process, and that's those are the fundamentals that you have to stick by. And how do you communicate your investment strategy and decisions to investors, and I guess, you know, to your peers? Well, you know, when and I, I just got back off the road, I did a mini tour in Alberta and, and met with a number of our clients out there. Just um, I love meeting our clients. And what I try and do is, is uh, Donna, I like to say I'm a simple guy in a complex world, right? So, you know, I, I, I if I can understand it, I think anyone can understand it. So I really try and explain it in ways that, you know, people can grasp like you know we put gas in our cars on on a regular basis if we're all driving more guess what the price of gas goes up if we're driving less the price of gas goes down it's the supply and demand curve if, if there's one thing out of out of economics 101 that we should take away it's supply and demand and that guides everything in the markets and in, in in equities and bonds you name it um but if you can break it down like that to say well here's how this happened and avoid the jargon avoid talking about multiples and valuations and things like this and really get down to, well, it's really quite simple. More people are using their cell phone. Therefore the cell phone providers are doing better. There you go. Perfect. And you know what? I can't say enough about how much we appreciate coming out every quarter. Can't wait for another three months to see how things do. Um, you can catch your podcast called the living markets and uh, listen to you every week, I suppose. Thanks again, Philip. Don, thank you. And Scott, thank you for having me again. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest has been Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Don't go away. We've got one segment left. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Our guest was Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist uh, with IG. He had to uh, run off to a meeting, but boy, that guy, he's a... It's it's fascinating to listen to him. He's got a big brain. He's got a lot going on up there. He definitely does. And there's so much. And, and we did get a chance to talk about fixed income, which we weren't able to air. But basically, in a nutshell, looking at 24, you know, you're looking at the fixed income part of a portfolio, which is, again, depending on your risk tolerance, can range from anywhere from zero, I suppose, to maybe even 50%. And so it's a large part. The bond area is a large part of a person's portfolio. And, and he's looking at, you know, the government bonds at about four and a half to 5% for 24. And, and again, a lot of opportunities in the high yield bonds and the, the shorter duration, which could be as high as 8%. So um, for those that say, oh, you have to be in equities to make lots of money. This is one of the aber- aberrations, I would say right now with interest a little higher, we can pick up some very good returns. So this is again, part of his rebalancing 
in the I profile model, and perhaps he's he's added a bit more to the fixed income to to attract that extra return. So again, it's always great to have him on the show, and I'm looking forward again every three months uh, to to continue this relationship. Now, one thing I do want to talk about is longevity, and you know what, we're talking to Philip Peterson about investments. Well, you know what, you better invest properly because people are living longer. And I saw and uh, the spectator, and, and I'm looking, and I do this periodically, maybe every once a year, maybe twice a year. And quite often when I'm talking to people, they say, oh, I should get my Canada pension plan early, or I should get my old age security as soon as I can. And that may be the case. However, in the spectator, I looked at the deaths over age 60. And yes, there was a few in the 60s, and there was a few in the 70s, a lot in the 80s, and a lot a fair bit in the 90s. In fact, 97 was the oldest person um, over the weekend. And the average was 85.3. And that totally goes, makes sense to what we've been saying. Um, people are living longer. And to get the Canada pension plan early, generally speaking, based on averages. And again, I, this was only one weekend, but this number comes up all the time. This is the kind of reporting I see every weekend. And it, as I like to see, okay, well, what exactly does it mean? So I, it was kind of funny in the, in the global, uh, just this week, I read this wonderful article about this lady, Betty Brussel. And for those listeners who are saying they have reasons why they can't do things because they're a little older, uh, you got to read all about Betty Brussel. She started getting serious about swimming at age 68. And over the weekend, she competed in a 400-meter freestyle, a 50-meter breaststroke, a 50-meter um, backstroke in uh, BC. And she set records for all three of them. And what category was that in? That was in the 100 to 104 age category. You know, and she actually turns 100 this July. So, oh. yes, it's based on the year you, you're born. So she turns it. So she's she competes in the 100. Um, perhaps that's cheating a little bit because she's only 99. But hey, these are the rules. I, I couldn't believe it. She absolutely demolished these records. And, for example, on the freestyle, um, the old record was 16 minutes and 36 seconds. She comes in at 12 minutes and 50 seconds. 12 minutes and 50, almost a four minutes. Um, she had, so, and on the other one, she was still just short of a minute. She beat the 50 meter freestyle and the, uh, sorry, the backstroke and the breaststroke. And she, in, in fact, she competed in five events. Now, five events in one day. Okay. <laughs> She's talking to a 26 year old that was there and it says, I can't compete in five events in one day. <laughs> she just, she rests for an hour. You're back in the pool and she goes. And it's such a great story to hear people that are, you know, not only, you know, they're getting older and they're having a great life, but they're embracing this. They're you're doing great. And this is one, this is not, I sure, it's an aberration. We don't have all 100-year-olds doing this, but we do have the odd one and a lot more. In fact, they probably didn't have a 100 to 104 age category 10 years ago. It is now the fastest growing age category over 100 in Canada. So we are living longer. And in her case, she didn't even take medication. She wears hearing aids and that's about it. And she drives herself to the pool twice a week, 20 minute drive. And, you know, she's just got a great attitude. And so, you know, one, one of her adages, I live life every day and enjoy it. And really at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? You get up and say, how do I add value? How do I have fun? How do I maximize fun, if you will, and make a great thing? And she does have a cell phone. 
but she says I only use it for emergencies. Unfortunately, all my friends died on me. Who am I going to call anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so great attitude. And so when it comes to financial planning, we talk about let's do your projection to age 95. I guess that would be too young for this lady, Betty, but it's important to plan this out. And I, I see a lot of plans and I see a lot of assumptions. And the last thing you want to do is run out of money. So that's the biggest risk is, is running out of money. And so you have a couple of things you have to look at. We talked to Philip Peterson, investing properly. Try to get the best rate of return with the least amount of risk. That's what he does. Then you have the longevity risk is extremely important. And again, talking about Betty living to 100, embracing 100, and hopefully he lives a, a lot longer than that by the sounds of it. But, and then you say, okay, let's put all these factors in place. Like Philip does, we look at a lot of data points and we say, okay, what's the inflation rate? What rate of return? How long are you going to live? What about taxation? What about income splitting? We put the plan together. And this is what makes the difference. We want to have the peace of mind that you will not run out of money and that you have a great life, not too dissimilar to Betty. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here, has been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with special guest Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another fascinating show, Don. Thanks so much. And we'll chat again next week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.